Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. Next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. Listener, we're all familiar with the oxymoron that silence is deafening. I'm sure you know what that sounds like. An awkward silence in a room full of people. A silence so intense, you can hear your heart pounding. If you've ever experienced snowfall in the wilderness, it's probably struck you that not only can you not hear a sound, but you've likely contemplated the more unsettling thought that if you screamed, no one would be able to hear you. When you can hear the snowflakes falling in the middle of nowhere, and there's no animals or people in sight for miles around, you could feel like the only person on Earth. Most of us are familiar with reality TV shows where people are isolated in remote locations around the world to test and demonstrate their skills. Stamina and endurance required to overcome the obstacles presented by Mother Nature. Extreme temperatures, exposure, hunger, dehydration, and exhaustion not to mention threats from native wildlife, all pose additional complications. It's difficult to imagine how we'd cope with such a grueling test of our mental and physical limits. Even when the most experienced of survivalists are navigating challenging terrain, using unusual methods of sourcing food and water, and only their smarts to extricate themselves from difficult situations, it's easy for us to be reassured and entertained. On TV, people are usually equipped with protective clothing, tools, and all five of their senses to help them get to where they need to go. We generally know that at the conclusion of each episode, people are generally not at too great a level of personal risk, and in an emergency, are always within easy reach of being transported by rescue helicopter should they require emergency assistance. And sure, we might scoff at some elements of the escape plan and say we might do things differently. But it's easy to do so, from the comfort of our couch. There's one additional challenge we don't often see survivalists or contestants on TV overcoming in their battle against the elements, and that's fear. The people we see have no reason to fear death from exposure, starvation, sudden changes in weather, dehydration. Feeling scared and highly anxious in survival situations is obviously a completely expected human reaction but it also compromises our ability to solve problems and think clearly when we're racing against the clock. What helps people find their way to safety is not fearlessness, though no doubt that helps. And it's not because we wouldn't ordinarily fear certain things if some part of the situation was different. What increases the chance of survival is that the people we watch in these orchestrated scenarios are not running from anyone. On most shows, People certainly have no reason to fear death at the hands of any person they encounter during their travels. Indeed. But listener, what happens when you're stranded and don't have the experience and those survival skills? No idea how far away you are from the closest town. No way of knowing when or if you'll be rescued. To make things even more sinister, what if you'd been stripped naked, handcuffed and blindfolded? And listener... What if, stranded in the middle of nowhere, the movement of the person you could suddenly hear as they made their way through the trees towards you, belonged to someone who wasn't coming to help you, but to hunt you? Now, 
Let's get on with it. Part 1. Pipe Dreams In the late 1960s, the city of Anchorage in south-central Alaska was by no means as cosmopolitan or populous as other major cities across the country. Despite the south-central region being home to over half of Alaska's population, the state is completely geographically isolated from the 48 mainland states of America, making Anchorage more of a sleepy frontier town. When abundant oil and gas reserves were discovered in 1957 at the Swanson River, on the Kenai Peninsula in southern Alaska, and later in 1968 at the Prudhoe Bay in the North Slope region of the state. At the time, there was no immediate need for these natural resources, but in 1973, the United States was plunged into the oil crisis thanks to the skyrocketing price of what became a valuable commodity, a method of delivering the available oil in Alaska to the lower 48 states would need to be swiftly remedied. This came with the construction of the 800-mile Trans-Alaskan Oil Pipeline, which commenced in 1973. The population of Alaska's largest city boomed as construction workers flooded into the area. A total of 28,000 people converged on the state to work in the construction industry alone and in Anchorage. The employment rate dropped to nearly zero. By the time the pipeline was completed in 1977, it could pump 2.1 million barrels of crude oil per day the most of any crude oil pipeline in the U.S. Along with the construction came an unprecedented amount of disposal income to be spent in Anchorage. In addition to new legitimate businesses opening up, there was an influx of sex workers, dancers, pimps, and drug dealers into the red-light tenderloin district. Strip clubs and bars popped up overnight on 4th Avenue, which became known colloquially as the largest bar in the world. Young women, lured by a quick buck, flocked to Anchorage to work as exotic dancers in clubs like Wild Cherry, The Embers, The Red Garter, Good Times Lounge, Kit Kat Club, Arctic Fox, The Nevada Club, and The Great Alaskan Bush Company, where they can earn up to $500 a day. Talent agents and booking agencies scouring to hire exotic dancers and sex workers would cycle girls out on a well-known route from California, north to Portland, then on to Seattle. Honolulu, and Alaska. Many of the exotic dancers and sex workers who drifted into and out of town had issues with drug and alcohol dependency, so it wasn't unusual when some of these women seemed to leave town as quickly as they arrived. For pimps and owners of the clubs, employees overdosing or skipping town without notice to get clean or avoid paying a drug debt came with the territory. The population boom had a downside, though and the demand this placed on local law enforcement agencies soon outweighed their capacity to adequately deal with the escalation of violent crime, including assaults, firearm offenses, armed robberies, and murders. The city of Anchorage itself was patrolled by the Anchorage Police Department, or APD. The Alaska State Troopers were a smaller agency, but their jurisdiction were areas both just outside the city limits of Anchorage, as well as the rest of the entire state of Alaska. Prior to the 1970s, there hadn't been any identified need for the state troopers to have specific protocols for dealing with the cases of sexual assault, and any forensic evidence that needed to be processed had to be sent outside of Alaska. As you'll hear, this would soon prove problematic when it came to adequately investigating the increase in the rate of sexual violence against women. Part 2. Snowed Under On July 21, 1980, workers conducting electrical maintenance on Eklutna Lake Road outside Anchorage discovered a shallow grave containing badly decomposed human remains that had been partially consumed by animals. The body was that of a Caucasian brunette woman, estimated to be aged between 16 to 25 years old, who was wearing knee-high, reddish-brown, high-heeled boots, jeans, a sleeveless knit top, and a brown leather jacket. She was also wearing a silver cuff bracelet with polished stones, which appeared handmade. Very little other evidence was located at the scene. Law enforcement struggled to identify the young woman, who had clearly met a brutal and lonely end. When an identification failed to be made in the days following the discovery, 
Police named their Jane Doe after the road where she was found. She became known as Eklutna Annie. That same month, the badly decomposed and partially frozen remains of another woman were found in a gravel pit near the Kenai Lake, just south of Moose Pass. When law enforcement arrived at the scene, the remains were being eaten by a bear, which eventually had to be shot by troopers to gain access to the site and preserve evidence. The body was identified of that of 24-year-old Joanna Messina, who disappeared on May 19, 1980, and was also known as Joanna McCoy. Joanna was a married dental assistant, but left her husband in New York and headed to Alaska with her German shepherd. Arriving across the other side of the country, Joanna had hoped to find work in a cannery, but soon started working as an exotic dancer. She lived in a rooming house in Seward, owned by a local vet and his wife, and spent most of her time in her room reading. But it wasn't long before Joanna was evicted, so she moved into another rooming house run by a local woman. It was while living at this rooming house that Joanna disappeared, and her landlady reported her missing, also telling police that Joanna had been having an affair with the same vet she'd rented a room from previously. There were several suspects in Joanna's death. The first was the vet, based on the allegations around the affair. When interviewed by state troopers, the vet denied knowing Joanna, but when a polygraph test revealed the vet was being deceptive, he finally admitted to having a relationship with Joanna. Other residents of the rooming house where Joanna lived reported that she hadn't exactly made friends with her fellow boarders, due to her own behavior and that of her dog. Joanna also had a fractious relationship with the rooming house manager who'd reported her missing, and who also reportedly kept a cache of guns, but she too was eventually eliminated. On September 12, 1982, Two off-duty state troopers were out hunting moose along the Kanik River, 25 miles outside Anchorage, when they noticed a boot sticking out of a gravel sandbar. Upon closer inspection, the pair also realized that a partially decomposed bone joint was also protruding from the ground. As trained law enforcement officers, both men retreated from the scene, leaving it undisturbed and reported the grisly discovery to their senior colleagues. When investigators attended the scene the following day, they noted the area was only accessible by motor vehicle, riverboat, or small aircraft. After painstakingly sifting through the sand, a single shell casing from a .223 caliber bullet was found in the grave. The kind of ammunition used in high-powered rifles such as M16s, Mini-14s, or AR-15s. The body was that of a woman in her early 20s, who was barefoot but wearing blue jeans, a baby blue sky jacket with dark blue trim on the shoulders, a sweater, underwear, and a bra. The lack of bullet holes in the victim's clothing indicated she had been naked when shot and then redressed after she was killed. An ace elastic bandage had been wrapped around her head and face from forehead to nose and was secured with metal clips. The victim was identified as 23-year-old exotic dancer Sherry Morrow, who was also known as Sherry Graves. Sherry worked at the Wild Cherry Bar as a waitress and exotic dancer where she danced under the name of Georgia. Her boyfriend reported her missing on November 23, 1981, six days after he last saw her. Sherry was found in the clothes she was reported to be wearing when she disappeared, but a gold arrowhead-shaped pendant she wore that was a gift from her boyfriend was missing. An autopsy found pieces of copper-jacketed bullet fragments in Sherry's chest cavity. She had been dead for around six months and three gunshot wounds in her back from two twenty-three caliber bullets from a Ruger Mini-14 rifle were identified as the cause of death. Police re-interviewed Sherry's boyfriend, who stated he hadn't seen her since he dropped her off to work on East 4th Avenue at approximately 11.30 p.m. on November 16th. After her shift, Sherry stayed the night with a girlfriend and planned to attend a doctor's appointment the following day. Her boyfriend checked with Sherry's doctor, who said Sherry did not attend her appointment. Both Sherry's boyfriend and her girlfriend told police that Sherry had also planned to meet up with a man on November 17th at Alice's 210 restaurant, who would pay her $300 for a photo shoot. Investigators told the Anchorage Daily News that they doubted the grisly discovery was related to the disappearance of at least two other women in the area in recent years, publicly denying any connection. As the months passed following Sherry's murder and no more bodies surfaced, police openly rejected the idea of a serial killer, treating Sherry's murder as an isolated event. 
But the book, Butcher Baker, The True Account of an Alaskan Serial Killer, by Walter Gilmore and Leland Hale, explains how behind closed doors, the discovery of Sherry Morrow's body actually gave police their first significant break in what was becoming a concerning pattern of disappearances. Someone was targeting the young women of Anchorage. Police just didn't know who. Listener, to find out how this started, what happened next, we first need to go back in time and over 3,000 miles away to the Midwestern state of Iowa. Part 3. The Perfect Dork Robert Christian Hansen was born on February 15, 1939, in Estherville, in the Midwestern state of Iowa. His parents were Christian Hansen, a Danish immigrant and baker by trade, and his wife, Edna. The Hansen family later moved to California but returned to Iowa after seven years, moving to Pocahontas where Christian purchased a bakery. Robert's father was exceptionally strict and very demanding. Despite Robert making every effort to please his father, Christian was a harsh disciplinarian and always found a fault with Robert, often referring to him as worthless. When Robert showed a tendency to be left-handed, Christian forced him instead to use his right hand. This was believed to have caused Robert such psychological stress as a child that he developed a debilitating stutter. Robert didn't exactly have an ally in his mother, Edna, who was known as a diminutive woman who always deferred to her overbearing husband and didn't make waves. Throughout childhood and adolescence, Robert was described as being quiet and a loner who had difficulty making friends. As well as being of slight build, Robert wore glasses and had acne so bad that he almost never socialized. Unsurprisingly, Robert was relentlessly bullied at school and straight out rejected by girls who refused to go out with him. During Robert's high school years, he worked part-time but long hours in the family's bakery, often starting work at 2 a.m. on school days. His strict religious parents and a lack of extra money prevented him from participating in the same type of social activities as his peers. During high school, he played basketball and achieved letters and track for long-distance running and broad jump. But like many shy and socially awkward adolescents who are isolated from their peers, Robert preferred to keep to himself, finding solace in hunting, fishing, and archery. In 1957, following his high school graduation, 18-year-old Robert enlisted in the Army Reserves, completing his basic training at Fort Dix in New Jersey. During his training, he was awarded Soldier of the Week and received a weekend pass, which he used to take a trip to New York with another soldier to see the sights of the Big Apple. Robert lost his virginity to a sex worker in an unsatisfying encounter. He continued to serve for a year in the Army Reserve before being discharged. Robert went on to receive training as a military police officer in Fort Knox, Kentucky. Despite his bad experience in New York, he continued to visit sex workers in Fort Knox. By 1959, he returned to Pocahontas to work in his father's bakery, while also working as a junior police drill instructor for the Pocahontas Police Academy. Robert liked to shock and impress his co-workers at the bakery by shooting at targets in the shop after hours with a bow and arrow and throwing knives into the wall, both without making a sound. In the summer of 1960, Robert married a girl called Phoebe, who was the daughter of the local chiropractor. Less than six months later, on December 7, 1960, Robert and an accomplice set fire to the Pocahontas Community School Bus Barn by splashing around gasoline and setting it alight. Robert claimed he wanted to see if he'd get away with the fire and said he held a grudge against the school superintendent. Robert was aided by a 16-year-old co-worker from the bakery, whose conscience soon got the better of him and he reported the fire to the police. When Robert's domineering father found out his son had been charged with arson, he was rightfully outraged. Robert, who attended the scene of the fire in his capacity as a volunteer fireman, pled guilty and was jailed for three years, but paroled after only serving 20 months of his sentence. Robert told the prison psychiatrist he lit the fire because he wanted to get even with everyone in Pocahontas. He spoke of his seething resentment for school and embarrassment about the bullying he received as a result of his stutter and severe acne. Despite the psychiatrist accessing Robert as having an infantile personality, during the incarceration he did help inmates who couldn't read or write, and he also received some speech therapy for his stutter, 
which seemed to help slightly. Meanwhile, wedded bliss for Robert proved to be short-lived. Phoebe had initially believed that her new husband was innocent of any wrongdoings regarding the fire at the bus barn, but when she found out he'd lied about his involvement, she divorced him, despite only being married for six months. When Robert was paroled in May 1963, at age 24, he joined his parents in Leech Lake, Minnesota, where they'd moved from Iowa while he was imprisoned. Robert spent his days painting boats and cabins and pursued his passion for the outdoors. It was in Minnesota that Robert met his second wife, Darla Hendrickson, whom he married in the fall of 1963. The marriage wouldn't always be a happy one, with Robert prone to unpredictable outbursts of anger for no apparent reason. While Darla was finishing college, Robert took up work in bakeries in Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota, but he was far from being on the straight and narrow. By this stage, Robert had taken to stealing and was caught shoplifting at a sports store in 1965. His wife Darla saw help from their local pastor to vouch for her husband, and luckily for Robert, the charges were dropped. Over the next few years, Robert continued to drift from one job to the next, his frequent changes in employment punctuated by arrests for petty theft. As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, Let's explore a different kind of mystery, one that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's Journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's Journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now... Let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Catherine Eagle, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash obscura. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then, she can either type her response or record her voice. 
and mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventure, and the challenges she overcame. The book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Personally, I love my life in a book. I tried it with my mom, and I've heard stories I'd never heard before because, you know, they just never came up naturally in conversation. It's easy to use, and my favorite part is it's given me more of an excuse to talk to my mom more. You know, it's not always easy to come up with those on your own. Listener, check out mylifeinabook.com and use code Obscura at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code Obscura for 10% off today. Part 4. North to the Future In 1967, at age 28, Robert and his wife decided to leave the Midwest behind them. When Darla graduated from college with her master's degree in education, the couple moved about as far away from Minnesota as you can get without leaving the country. They decided that their new home was going to be in Alaska, which only eight years previously had been admitted as the 49th state of the U.S. 2.3 times the size of the state of Texas, Alaska is the largest U.S. state by an area bigger than France, Germany, and Britain combined. But in 1967, it only had the population of 278,000 people, making it the most sparsely populated of the 50 states. The vast terrain of Alaska consists of 160 million acres of unspoiled wilderness, 6,600 miles of sweeping ocean coast to the north, west, and south, large rivers, 100,000 glaciers, national parks, over 3 million lakes, rainforests, active volcanoes, and an abundance of wildlife. Of the 20 highest mountains in the United States, 17 are found in Alaska. The Kinnick River Valley is located only 25 miles outside Anchorage, near the Chugach Mountains, but may as well be a world away. The valley is a popular spot for hunters looking for mountain goats, doll sheep, black bears, wolves, moose, and migratory birds. The 40-kilometer river itself runs from the Kinnick Glacier, flowing northwest until it empties close to the mouth of the Matanuska River. But despite its spectacular natural beauty, it's not unusual for inexperienced hikers and hunters to get lost in Alaska's mountainous and remote expanse. The hazards can be deceiving. Robert found work in Anchorage as a baker and a warehouseman where his co-workers noticed that he liked to brag about stealing and how much he loved hunting. Robert worked hard, though, and was initially the primary breadwinner for Darla and their two children, managing to save enough to eventually purchase a home and two cars. When Darla returned to work, she tutored children with learning disabilities from the nearby elementary school. Robert got along with his neighbors, and he and his wife became active in the local Lutheran church. Part 5. The Deer Hunter Following his father's death, Robert inherited a collection of firearms, including revolvers and 17 hunting rifles. Robert continued to hunt with gusto, by now a skilled marksman who proudly displayed his hunting trophies in the form of mounted animal heads and hides on the walls of his den. Robert had become so experienced that from 1969 through 1971, he had four titles entered into the world record books of hunting. He set records in 1971 for killing caribou and bighorn doll sheep with a bow and arrow, along with other records for hunting mountain goats and black bears. On November 11, 1971, 18-year-old real estate secretary Susan Heppard was driving home to her Anchorage apartment when she pulled up at some traffic lights on Northern Lights Boulevard. As another car pulled up beside her, she reflexively turned to look at the male driver, and they exchanged a brief smile. When Susan arrived home, she was surprised to find that the man had followed her. 
The man asked Susan for a date, as he didn't know many people in town. But Susan declined and thought that that was the end of it. Ten days later, Susan arrived home to her apartment when the same man confronted her at her door. He held a gun to her head, threatening, Shut up, sweetheart, or I'll blow your head off. Susan ignored this threat and screamed for her life, prompting the man to run from the scene. Susan's roommates immediately called the police to report the terrifying ordeal. When the man was located by police nearby, they quickly identified him as 32-year-old Robert Hansen and found a 22 caliber pistol under the driver's seat of his car. Robert denied assaulting Susan, telling police it seemed like a bad dream, but he was charged with assault with a deadly weapon. After Robert was charged, a court-ordered psychiatric report stated that he suffered from a mental illness in the form of bipolar affective disorder, accompanied by memory loss and thought disorder, suggesting that this is what caused him to engage in criminal activity. 18-year-old student Celia Van Zanten lived in Anchorage with her three older brothers and cousin Greg Nicholas in a large house on Kinnick Avenue in South Anchorage, near Northern Lights Boulevard. Known as Beth, she attended Anchorage Community College and was close with her family, who were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. On the afternoon of December 22, 1971, Beth, who was looking forward to Christmas, went shopping with her mother, aunt, and cousin. When Beth arrived home later that day, she watched a movie with two of her three older brothers. Around 8.30 p.m., Beth decided that she wanted some soda, as there was none in the house, she decided to head to a nearby Bilo convenience store, only a few blocks away. Before she left, she told her brothers that she was supposed to babysit for one of their cousin Greg's friends. Beth told her brothers that if Greg arrived to pick her up while she was out, for them to have him wait until she returned. Beth didn't have much time to get to the store, which she knew closed at 9 p.m. She was seen walking to the Bilo between 8.45 to 9 p.m., neighbor also claimed to have seen her on Northern Lights Boulevard at this time, but Beth never made it to Bilo. When she didn't return, her brothers assumed that their cousin Greg had picked Beth up on the way to the store and taken her to her babysitting appointment. As a result, Beth's brother didn't report her missing until two days later. Beth's body was discovered on Christmas Day, 1971 by two brothers visiting McHugh State Park south of Anchorage, who were taking photos of the winter scenery. One of the brothers saw what he thought was a mannequin partially buried in the snow and laying at an odd angle. It was Beth's body, naked from the waist down. Her jeans, green parka, and rubber-soled hiking boots were all missing, but found near her body were pieces of yellow tissue paper. Beth's bra had been slashed with a knife and her hands bound behind her back with speaker wire. There was also a gag on her face. In the days following her disappearance, temperatures in the state park ranged from a low of negative 5 degrees Fahrenheit to a high of 22 degrees Fahrenheit. Handcuffed and faced with the impossible climb up a steep slope, Beth was unable to fight the effects of exposure and had frozen to death. It appeared that Beth had temporarily managed to escape from her assailant. However, the snow was three feet deep and she fell 50 feet from where her killer's car had been. In the nearby parking lot, investigators found circular tire marks on the asphalt, indicating that Beth's attacker had been tearing through the area, searching for her before he left. A search of the surrounding area later revealed a silver belt buckle and a black leather belt. At Beth's autopsy the following day, it was confirmed that she had been sexually assaulted and had also sustained a diagonal slash mark between her breasts. Aside from the wire used to tie Beth's hands, there was little forensic evidence. No hair belonging to anyone else was found on Beth or clothing. The semen found in her vagina couldn't be tested for DNA at the time. Forensic scientists could only match blood samples, not DNA. Beth's exact time of death was unclear due to low temperatures that had frozen her body. State troopers had difficulty identifying the source of the wire restraint. It was a double-strand, black-and-white stereo wire, with indications it was made in Japan. Troopers contacted local businesses and Interpol in an effort to track down the manufacturer and identify an American outlet for the product. In terms of gathering witness evidence, troopers scoured the greater Anchorage area, interviewing Beth's friends and acquaintances. 
No one knew much at all. Beth's ex-boyfriends were also interviewed, but this too proved a dead end, as her alibis all checked out. But within a week of Beth's disappearance, troopers found two witnesses who'd reportedly seen her in the bathroom of the Value Mart at around 3.30 or 4 p.m. on the day she went missing. While in a bathroom stall, one witness heard someone say, Get up off the floor, Beth. When the witness exited the stall, she saw a girl with long, wet, blonde hair sitting on the floor of the bathroom. She was wearing dungarees, but had no shoes or stockings, and her green coat was lying on the floor beside her. Her bare feet were purple from the cold, and she was smoking a cigarette. The witness asked her what was the matter. Beth told the woman her feet were cold, but she didn't have any shoes. So the witness asked Beth if she wanted to contact the store manager. Beth declined the offer and said she had walked a long way, telling the woman she had to walk to Bilo and meet someone in the parking lot. While Beth was answering the woman's questions, the woman noticed Beth kept looking at the wall, suggesting she didn't want to engage in the conversation. One friend described Beth as an extrovert who didn't scare easily and who liked to walk everywhere, even by herself at night, but that she wouldn't accept rides from strangers. Other friends told police that Beth was shy and reserved, and also that she didn't trust her cousin, Greg, who lived in the house with Beth and her brothers, and whose bedroom was next to Beth's. This gave police cause to look at Greg more closely. Beth and Greg were said to have conflict in their relationship. While it was suspected that Greg may have been sexually attracted to Beth, it was never proven. Greg told police he had been out drinking heavily with friends the night his cousin disappeared, Towards the end of the night out, Greg and his friends were stopped by APD, who made the group take a cab home due to their state of drunkenness. Greg certainly had the opportunity to kill Beth, but to complicate matters, he later claimed he spoke to Beth at the house that evening. However, her brothers claimed they didn't see Greg at the house at all. Greg eventually took a polygraph test and passed. Some witnesses, meanwhile, reported seeing Beth hitchhiking as late as 11 p.m., the night she disappeared. But an unexpected break in the case came within 24 hours. 18-year-old sex worker Sandra Patterson came forward to report that three days before Beth went missing, Sandra was kidnapped by a man she had an appointment to meet at the Nevada club. Sandra was addicted to heroin and used sex work to fund her dependency. Sandra told police that when she met the man in the parking lot of the club, He kidnapped her at gunpoint and threatened to kill her if she didn't do what he wanted, telling her he was a fine, upstanding businessman in the local community. The man bound Sandra's hands together with shoelaces and proceeded to drive her south along the Seward Highway. He kept pulling his car off the road, trying to kiss Sandra and telling her he wanted to have sex with her, but she refused. The man forced Sandra to take off her clothes and said he wanted to slash her bra with his knife. He then told her he was going to take her to Kenai to some cabins. The pair eventually arrived at the Sunrise Inn on the Kenai Peninsula, two hours' drive south of Anchorage. The man raped Sandra, but he failed to orgasm. They then left the motel, and the man drove into the Alaskan wilderness. Getting further away from any nearby towns, Sandra managed to convince her captor to turn back, but on the way back to Anchorage, the man threatened to kill Sandra if she reported him to the police. Sandra later told the APD that the man's penis was shaped funny, like it was deformed or something. It was short, but very large around. Sandra described the man as aged between 23 to 28 years old, around 5'8 or 5'9, with a slim build and short blonde hair, who was wearing horn-rimmed glasses. He was also wearing a jacket, GI-type pants, and dark heavy boots. Sandra was shown a picture of 32-year-old Robert Hansen, which police had taken following his arrest for his attack on Susan Heppard the month before. When Robert kidnapped Sandra, he was still awaiting trial for the November assault on Susan. Sandra told police, You know, I may be doing something that some people don't think is totally acceptable, and it may not be, but that's not why I'm here. I'm here because that Hansen guy is probably a premeditated cold-blooded killer who was killed before. He said he killed before, and everything he said was absolutely true. Every threat he made, I believed. And if he says he's killed people, I believe he's killed people. If you've got a young girl 
who's been killed around the same time and in the same area, then I believe it was Hansen who killed her. I believe he'd kill me too. Police impounded Robert's car and on the 29th of December brought him in for questioning with both the APD and Alaska State Troopers. During Robert's interview, which was punctuated by numerous long pauses while he collected his thoughts, Robert was notably evasive and repeatedly claimed to remember nothing when questioned. Robert admitted that check-in documentation from the Sunrise Inn the morning after Sandra was kidnapped looked like his writing but couldn't say whether he had written it. When he was asked if he had anything in his wallet that bore his handwriting, he produced a piece of paper with the name J. Patterson and an Anchorage address. Robert claimed he didn't know what the note was, who it related to, or how it even came into his possession. Police asked him about meeting Sandra at the Nevada club the morning of December 19th, but he denied going to the club or driving his car on the day in question. However, the evidence against Robert was strong, and he was charged with kidnapping and raping Sandra Patterson and assault with a deadly weapon. Bail was set at $50,000. Following the charges, Robert received a psychiatric evaluation, where it was noted that not only did he have a mental illness which would be difficult to treat, but that he had also been fantasizing about harming women since his adolescence. Robert denied any involvement in Beth's murder. He stated that on December 22, 1971, he went to work at 4.45 a.m. and headed home after finishing at 2 p.m. He spent the rest of the afternoon and evening with his family going to bed at 11 p.m. He claimed that the following day, he got up at 4.30 a.m., arrived at work at 4.45 a.m., again working until 2 p.m. It didn't go unnoticed that in his handwritten statement, Robert made nine references to the time of day. He did admit to usually carrying a 22 Colt Woodsman handgun in his car when he went out hunting, but eventually decided he didn't want to continue the police interview without speaking to his attorney. While Robert denied being involved in Beth's abduction, police arrived at the conclusion that based on Robert's account of his movements on December 22nd, it was certainly possible for him to have kidnapped and raped Beth and abandoned her outside to die. The similarities between Beth's kidnapping and Sandra's experience showed that both girls were taken to the same area, had their hands bound, were stripped to prevent escape, had their bras slashed or threatened to be, and they were sexually assaulted. Beth's house was also within a mile of the apartment where Robert had accosted Susan Heppard. In March 1972, Robert went to trial for his assault on Susan Heppard. In agreeing to a no-contest plea, the subsequent charges regarding Sandra Patterson were dropped. At trial, Robert's minister testified on his behalf, portraying him as a hard-working Christian family man and upstanding citizen who worked two jobs. His employer testified he was a capable and willing worker, and a psychiatrist asserted that the offense resulted from Robert's diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Despite Robert's previous psychiatric assessment identifying a desire to harm women, the judge concurred with the psychiatrist, sentencing Robert to five years' imprisonment on the condition that he continue to receive psychotherapy. But in June 1972, after serving only six months, Robert was transferred to a halfway house and placed on a work release program where he was considered to be a model resident. While it was initially suggested in 1971 that it would be difficult to treat Robert's bipolar disorder successfully, a subsequent letter from a different psychiatrist some months later indicated that Robert had made such an improvement through therapy that he was suitable to be released on parole. After all, he had a trade, a family, was a churchgoer, and had an interest in the outdoors particularly bow hunting and fishing. In November 1972, Robert returned home to his family. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
17-year-old Megan Emmerich was a student at the Seward Skills Center, which has since been renamed the Alaskan Vocational Technical Center. Seward is a two-hour drive south of Anchorage, east of the Kenai Fjords National Park on the Kenai Peninsula. Megan was born and raised in Delta Junction, Alaska. She spent her time riding horses and motorcycles, listening to rock music, and fishing and hunting on the Yukon River. Megan was last seen leaving her dormitory laundry room on July 7, 1973. After three days of trying to track her down, Megan's roommate reported her missing. Megan had no known record of trouble. All of her personal belongings, including her ID, were left behind. At the time of Megan's disappearance, Robert was on parole for his attack on Susan Heppard. His parole records show that he was in Seward on the weekend that Megan disappeared. Other records also show that at this time, Robert owned a large boat, which he moored at the Seward docks. Only an 11-minute walk from the Seward Skill Center, where Megan was last seen, Robert used his 36-foot cabin cruiser to fish in the Seward area, and he learned to scuba dive by taking some divers he'd met on the docks out on his boat. Megan Emmerich was never seen again, and her body has never been found. But police believe she may be buried at Resurrection Bay, near Seward. Two years after Megan's disappearance, 22-year-old Mary Thill went missing on July 5, 1975. Like Megan, Mary was also a student at the Seward Skill Center, but lived on Lower Point Road. Mary's parents both died when she was still in high school, leaving the children in the family orphaned. Despite this hardship, Mary was known always to be smiling and friendly. She had a large circle of friends, was a capable student, and was crowned high school prom queen. By the summer of 1975, Mary was married, and her husband was working in the North Slope region of the state on the Trans-Alaskan Pipeline. On the day Mary disappeared, friend gave her a ride to the Seward Bakery, now known as the Ranting Raven Bakery, in downtown Seward, which was also a three-minute drive away from the nearest boat launch for those who wanted to head out and enjoy the water. Another friend reported seeing Mary between 1.30 and 2 p.m. that day at the Lowall Creek Waterfall, 10-minute walk south of the bakery. It was completely unlike Mary to disappear without informing anyone where she was going. Her devastated husband returned from the North Slope to assist in the search for his wife, but nothing further was uncovered. At the time of Mary's disappearance, 36-year-old Robert Hansen was still on parole for his attack on Susan Heppard in late 1971. On the weekend that Mary disappeared, Robert's parole records showed that he traveled south to Seward and had access to a vehicle during his stay. Prior to departing Anchorage, Robert had asked a friend if he knew any women he could party with in Seward. Like Megan Emmerich, Mary was never seen again after that 4th of July weekend. And while her body has never been found, she too is believed to have been buried at Resurrection Bay. On October 5, 1975, the Anchorage Rape and Assault Center reported to police that a 28-year-old woman had reportedly been abducted and raped by a man a week earlier on September 28th. The woman had met her assailant at the Kit Kat Club one evening, where she worked as an exotic dancer and had given him her telephone number. The woman said that the man called her home on September 28th and arranged to meet her at the Fork and Spoon restaurant. When the woman arrived to meet the man, he pulled a gun on her which she described as a large semi-automatic pistol. The man forced the woman into his vehicle, which she described as a dark red 1974-75 foreign station wagon with a black interior. The woman said the man then drove her to Chugiak State Park, where he raped her and told her that if she did not do as she was told, he would kill her. The man told the woman that he and a friend both worked on the pipeline and they were also both raping women in the Anchorage area. The man also told the woman that if she reported him to the police, she wouldn't be a credible witness because she was an exotic dancer and sex worker. The woman described the man as Caucasian, approximately 30 years old, 5 foot 8 tall with an average build, short brownish blonde hair, blue eyes, wearing wire-rimmed glasses, and having a slight stutter. The woman had sworn staff to secrecy at the Rape and Assault Center concerning her name, and said that she would not talk to police herself out of fear for her life. Given his prior record, police interviewed Robert Hansen on October 14, 1975, but he denied abducting or raping anyone on September 28, stating that on that date he went fishing in the Seward area 
Robert did say that he had met a tall, dark-haired girl at the Kit Kat Club the previous summer while his family was on vacation. That after a brief conversation with her, the pair agreed to go back to where the girl was staying. Robert said that as he was driving along, the girl told him it would cost $100. This upset Robert, who claimed it wasn't a part of the deal, so he drove her back to the Kit Kat Club. Robert told police this girl became angry with him and started swearing, but he didn't take any action in response. Robert denied owning any pistols on the basis that his previous firearm conviction prevented him from doing so. On October 16, 1975, the woman positively identified the photograph of her assailant as Robert Hansen. However, she still refused to be identified to police, talk to them directly, or file any charges. The woman, a schoolteacher, who had come to Alaska to make a quick buck dancing, was humiliated and wanted to put the whole thing behind her. Robert was questioned based on the license plate number the woman had provided, but without charges being pressed, he was free to go. Robert's parole period regarding the attack on Susan Heppard ended in 1976. In early November of that year, a security guard at Fred Meyer's department store in Anchorage caught Robert shoplifting a chainsaw. 37-year-old Robert was charged with larceny, but expressed remorse, saying, I know what I did was wrong, and I'm very sorry for doing so. Robert, who was already taking the drug Thorazine, was open with psychiatrists about his penchant for stealing, and it was noted that he demonstrated poor impulse control during manic episodes of his illness. Kleptomania, which is defined as the uncontrollable impulse to steal without economic need, is an example of how bipolar disorder can manifest in some people with illness. In April 1977, Robert pled guilty to the chainsaw theft. By the time he was sentenced, a subsequent psychiatric assessment noted that the drug lithium was proving effective in helping to manage and stabilize his manic episodes. Robert's psychiatrist believed that the best safeguard against Robert's bipolar disorder contributing to reoffending was continued treatment and his engagement as an active member of the community. The sentencing judge considered Robert's rehabilitation potential. He felt Robert posed a danger to the community during his manic episodes and thought it appropriate for him to continue to be isolated. Robert was sentenced to five years in prison on the provision that he be eligible for parole at the earliest possible date, and that he receive psychiatric treatment to assist his transition back into the community. Despite this being Robert's third felony conviction, he appealed his five-year sentence as excessive, on the basis that it was a property offense, that he had a solid family, employment, and financial background and a promising prognosis for managing his mental illness. Robert's psychiatrist had prescribed lithium and therapy and reported to the sentencing court that Robert had been cooperative throughout treatment. The psychiatrist also testified that the chances of Robert engaging in future criminal activity would be greatly reduced by this ongoing treatment and continued therapy. In August 1978, the Alaskan Supreme Court concurred that Robert's sentence was excessive, Given the theft of the chainsaw did not involve any physical aggression, threats or result in any physical injury, Robert was released from prison after serving only a year, but surprisingly was not court-ordered to take his medication. Following his release, 39-year-old Robert applied for a pilot's license. However, as he was taking lithium, the application was rejected. The long, dark nights of Alaska's freezing winters meant that entertainment was limited. The men who worked on the pipeline during the day spent their nights frequenting bars and brothels to help pass the time and seek out female company, and Robert was no exception. From the time he moved to Alaska, he continued to visit downtown Anchorage in the early hours of the morning to engage the services of exotic dancers and sex workers, or as he preferred to call them, bad girls. Robert's preferred sexual activity with sex workers was to have oral sex performed on him. It was something he later said he would never ask his wife to do. After all, she was someone he considered a good girl. In Robert's mind, good girls didn't perform certain sexual acts, even on their husbands. That was something only bad girls did. Christy Hayes was a sex worker and exotic dancer at the Embers Bar in Anchorage. On October 14, 1979, she met a man at the bar and agreed to a date with him when she finished her shift. The man paid her $110 for sex, and when she finished work, they made their way back from the bar to a camper that the man had parked outside. 
Prior to getting inside, the man asked Christy if she wanted to take an airplane ride with him southwest of Palmer, 45-minute drive away, but she declined. When Christy climbed into the camper, she noticed a number of animal furs and rifles. Undeterred, she stripped naked, but the man kept his clothes on. Suddenly, he pointed a 357 Magnum revolver in her face and told her to cooperate, saying, I don't want to hurt you, but I just don't like quickies. The man bound Christy's feet and hands with guitar wire, shoved her into the bunk of the camper, locked her inside, and drove off. Christy started shouting that she needed to get home to her kids and managed to free her hands and feet. When the man noticed his captive was free of her bindings, he slammed on the brakes, causing Christy to fall to the floor. The man pointed the gun at Christy from the cab of the camper before moving to the back door. Seizing her opportunity at escape, Christy slid into the cab of the camper through the connecting window, closed it, and locked the doors. But her attacker still had the keys, which meant Christy was trapped. The man approached the window of the cab, saying he didn't mean to hurt her. Christy demanded her clothes back, but the man responded by punching the driver's side window of the cab, shattering the glass. Christy escaped out the passenger door, running naked and bleeding down the street, frantically knocking on the door of nearby houses. She had left her clothes, including a blue bag with her dancing costumes, in the camper. Christy described her attacker as approximately 40 years old, 5'10 with brown hair, and wearing a plaid hunting jacket and shirt. When the APD attended the scene, they found tire tracks and broken glass where Christy stated the camper had stopped, but nothing else came of her report. By early 1980, Christy was working at the Great Alaskan Bush Company. On March 23rd, she contacted the APD, stating she'd spotted the man at the bar who'd kidnapped her five months earlier. When police arrived, Christy identified the man who police recognized on site. It was Robert Hansen, who agreed to be interviewed by APD that night about the assault on Christy. Robert denied having abducted Christy or threatening her with a gun. He told police that he met her a few months earlier at the Embers Bar and had given her a ride home one night when she finished her shift. Robert claimed that during the ride home, he stopped the camper and Christy performed consensual oral sex on him. He stated that she demanded $75 for the service, but given this hadn't been discussed previously, he refused to pay. Robert claimed that Christy became angry and started screaming at him, so he threw her out of the back door of the camper. No further action was taken by the APD regarding Christy's allegation. Robert wasn't questioned about the broken glass at the site where Christy said the camper had stopped and Robert had punched the window. Nor was he asked about the clothes Christy claimed she left in the camper when she escaped. On July 2, 1980, 24-year-old sex worker Roxanne Eastland was reported missing. Like many other sex workers, Roxanne used aliases and was also known as Karen Lee. Not much is known about Roxanne, but she came to Anchorage from Seattle. Prior to her disappearance, she and her boyfriend had been staying at the Budget Motel on Spennard Road in Anchorage for two weeks. She was last seen on June 28th near 4th Avenue in downtown Anchorage, where it was said she was to meet with an unidentified man. Roxanne was never seen again. September 7, 1980 was the last time anyone saw 41-year-old Lisa Futrell, who was also known as Betty. Not much is known about Lisa, but she relocated to Anchorage from Hawaii and worked as an exotic dancer at the Great Alaskan Bush Company. 1980 was also the year that Robert Hansen reported a burglary at his home. He told his insurance company that thieves had made off with his prized collection of taxidermied-mounted animal heads. The resulting insurance claim saw Robert receive $13,000, which he used to open his own bakery in January 1981. Situated on the corner of 9th Avenue and Ingra Street, the business proved to be a roaring success. Everyone in town, including officers of the APD, bought their donuts and coffee from Bob the Baker, as Robert became known. Like some of the other women who had gone missing from Anchorage, 28-year-old Malai Larson disappeared in June 1981. Nothing further is known about Malai, or how she came to be reported missing to police. 24-year-old Andrea Altieri grew up in Hawaii, the daughter of then-prominent journalist and Hawaii State Senator Mason Altieri. Andrea moved to Anchorage when she took up exotic dancing and was known as a tough girl. 
She sometimes went by her sister's name of Lisa or the nickname Fish, and she danced under the name of Enchantment. Andrea was last seen taking a cab to the Boniface Mall in Anchorage at 11 p.m. on December 2nd, 1981, where she was to meet an unidentified man for a photo shoot. She was never seen again. 42-year-old Robert Hansen still had some money left over from his insurance claim regarding the theft of his hunting trophies. So in January 1982, he purchased a light plane, a blue and white Piper Super Cub. Robert was still unable to obtain a pilot's license due to taking lithium to manage his bipolar disorder, but he flew anyway. 23-year-old Sue Luna grew up in Washington State, a good friend to others. Sue loved being around people and making them laugh with her mischievous sense of humor. Sue was known for making faces and doing imitations. She was remembered to be especially good at impersonation of Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones, pursing her lips and strutting while singing Satisfaction. In May 1982, Sue traveled to Alaska for two weeks for a break and to visit her sister Roberta and her brother-in-law who lived in Anchorage. Roberta knew that downtown Anchorage after dark could be a risky place for a single girl, especially the crime-ridden area of 4th Avenue. She worried about Sue's safety and tried to convince her sister to carry a weapon for self-defense. But Sue didn't see a need. Even after hours, the streets of Anchorage were busy with people looking to have a good time. If anyone posed a risk, there would be plenty of people around to come to someone's aid. Sue found a combination at the Sleeping Lady Apartments, and along with her roommate, she worked the 2-10 to 10 shifts as an exotic dancer at the Good Times Bar in downtown Anchorage. At the bar on May 25th, Sue met an unidentified man whom she agreed to meet the next day at Alice's 210 restaurant, on the understanding that she was to be paid $300 for an hour of sex. On May 27th, Roberta went to collect Sue from her apartment so the sisters could spend the weekend together. But Sue wasn't there. Her roommate told Roberta that Sue hadn't turned up for work on May 26th. She hadn't seen Sue since she left the apartment the day before in a taxi. On May 30th, 1982, Roberta reported Sue missing to the APD. 21-year-old exotic dancer Tamara Peterson moved from Washington State to Anchorage, where she danced at the Wild Cherry. The last time anyone saw her alive was August 1982, when she took a bag with various outfits to attend a photo shoot. 24-year-old Angela Federn was known by almost everyone as Angie. She moved to Anchorage from Seattle to find work in the booming city. Angie's mother and sister both knew that she was a drug user and relied on sex work to support both her drug dependency as well as her five-year-old daughter who lived in Fairbanks in the interior region. The family tried their best to help Angie, and in 1983, she promised her sister she'd take just one more trip to Anchorage, then return to Seattle for good. But this wasn't to be. Angie's family last heard from her in February 1983, when her phone calls home stopped. That same month, Angie was reported missing by the owner-operator of Murphy's Law, an Anchorage bar that employed exotic dancers. No official missing persons report was filed with the APD. The information was instead passed on to state troopers. Angie was said to have a date with a doctor just prior to her disappearance. Her mother, Mary, couldn't bear to think about what could have happened to her daughter, telling the media, That was the life she chose. Angie just couldn't find it in herself to go out and get a thinking job. She did the best she could. The disappearances continued, with 22-year-old sex worker Teresa Watson, who moved to Anchorage from Sacramento, California, not much is known about Teresa, but she was reported to have vanished between late April through March 1983. Listener, here's where part one ends. But before we go, I just wanted to mention something. You may have noticed that the level of detail given about certain victims in this case so far has varied. I just want to take a moment to assure you then cases where there may be little to no additional information available about these victims beyond their name, age, and date of disappearance or death, this was not for lack of trying. Here in Obscura, the most important thing is for us to honor victims and survivors and tell stories about who they were as people and what they meant to their loved ones. Unfortunately, the focus of a lot of true crime storytelling these days centers around the offender, which is only natural but this means that the amount of information available about offenders 
often far outweighs the detail available about the victims' lives. Part of this challenge can be contextual. Cases where some victims don't have strong family ties, it can be difficult to locate specific information, especially when a disappearance isn't noticed or reported straight away. Nevertheless, please be assured that telling victim stories for us is paramount. We will always strive for that to be our main focus. So for today, I think that wraps things up. Make sure to keep an eye out next week for the release of Part 2 to find out how a killer's reign of terror ended. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.